And if you watch it over a period of years, you'll see a denomination that does this, you'll see an individual that does this, you'll see a local church that does this. Once they change their views on these issues, on the nature of relationships as God has intended them, once that happens, they get off target. And the further and further they go, and the longer and longer it goes on, you end up in complete heresy. So on my end personally, it's, it's kind of odd that I ended up being looked to as an, as an expert in these areas or been asked to speak many times or be on secular TV addressing homosexual-related issues, LGBTQ-related issues, because number one, I, I don't come out of homosexuality. That's not part of my testimony. Uh, I got saved in 1971 as a heroin-shooting, LSD-using, hippie rock drummer. That's part of my testimony. I'm Jewish. That's part of my testimony. But didn't come out of homosexuality, never struggled in that area, can't relate personally to what that would feel like, or transgender issues, what it would feel like to be feel like you're trapped in the wrong body. So that's not my personal background. I never had a particular burden to minister to those who, who identified as gay and lesbian, I felt drawn to that, or even just people with sexual brokenness in general. Never felt particularly drawn to that. I preached holiness for years, but the holiness emphasis was always heterosexual. That's the world I lived in. That's the life I lived. Those are the struggles I had. So that's, that's what I preach about. And then academically, my PhD is in Near Eastern languages and literatures from New York University, which enabled me to study the Hebrew Bible in its original context and with the ancient languages to help me in my interaction with the Jewish community and, and, and debates about the Hebrew Bible. So I don't have the academic background. I don't have the personal background. And I didn't have a particular sense of calling to get involved in this. Uh, even when someone close to our family um, was ex-gay and got to know him well and watched his walk with the Lord many years, even then I didn't have a particular burden or sense of calling. In 2004, one year after our ministry had relocated from Pensacola, Florida, where we had been from seven years, for seven years up to uh, the Charlotte, North Carolina area, some of my colleagues went to a gay pride event in the city when I was uh, ministering overseas, and they reported back what happened. They were just jarred. They were, they were jarred by the fact that it was a public park and things were going on right in the, right in the presence of little children. Uh, they were jarred that when they just were sharing the gospel individually, not in an intimidating way, that the police ordered them out of the park. So basically, you could do what you're doing in the park, but if you came in to talk about Jesus, you were out. And, and even though we were, we were new in the city, and I'm a New Yorker at, at heart, uh, when I heard that, I got this burden, not in my city. And, and then I began to look into things more and began to, to read and see what was happening with gay activism. I had followed this a little over the years. But at that point, I had written 19 books. If you, if you went through all the books, all 19 books, and looked for every single reference to homosexuality, gay, lesbian, anything like that, maybe you could pull all the references out and they'd fill one page. That was it. It was not my focus. But suddenly, as I began to look and study and consider things, I realized that, in point of fact, that this was now the number one spiritual, moral, cultural issue, you know, all together that the church was facing. I, I realized, I mean, we understand abortion, the evil of abortion, that we, at least we had unity understanding that, but that this would be the great challenge. And, and I realized quickly that this was the principal threat to freedom of religion and speech in America. This is 2004. It just became as clear as day to me. 
And I saw very clearly back then that those who came out of the closet wanted to put us in the closet. So obviously, from their perspective, they're fighting for equality, for freedom, for what's right, for what's good. They, are, they just want their relationships to be treated the way everyone else's relationships should be treated. And they were fighting for that. Those who came out of the closet wanted to put us in the closet. This all became clear to me within months back in 2004. And I, I felt the Lord burdening me to help push back against the rising tide of homosexual activism. And I knew when I got that burden, you could say it was more a prophetic burden about the issues in the society. I knew that that was only part of God's heart, and that in order for me to fully have God's heart, I had to care about the people. One pastor made the comment that my generation, so I, I turned 66 this week, my generation, we hear the word homosexuality, we think an issue. The younger generation, they hear the word, they think a person. And of course, it's both and, issues and people. But I knew in order to have God's heart that I needed to have a broken heart of love and compassion for the people. So how do you do that? Well, you sit with people and you ask them their stories and you read books, you read about their stories, especially those who, who were raised in church. People tried to drive demons out of them. Some actually had shock therapy in the old days, you know, when this was done more commonly for a variety of, of issues and behaviors. And, you know, make an appointment with a local gay activist to sit, hey, tell me your story. And, and my heart broke, especially as, as I saw how people rejected God over this, rejected church over this, because in their minds, God was some monster. He created them like this and then damned them to hell for being who they were. And the church hated them as if they were the worst of all sinners. So I, my heart broke. I remember one night putting down a book I was reading that was calling for sensitivity and, and, and talking about how people left their faith because of their sexual orientation. I remember getting alone and just getting on my knees weeping, saying, God, I don't want to hurt people. I just want to help people. I just want to help people. And it was early in 2005, while praying and fasting with some friends in front of the, the Supreme Court on the anniversary of Roe v. Wade in, in D.C., that I, I heard the Spirit say to my heart, kind of brought together what I had been thinking for for weeks and months, it came together in a simple phrase, reach out and resist. Reach out and resist. Reach out to the people with compassion. Resist the agenda with courage. And I knew that reaching out to those who identified as gay, lesbian, bi, transgender was not as major a, a word then. But I understood that special sensitivity and compassion would be needed because there had been so much rejection, so much hurt, uh, some of it by the church being insensitive and uneducated, that, that special compassion was needed. Just like if your friend has a sunburn and you don't know it, and you just say, hey, pat him on the shoulder like you always do, and, the, and they yell. We didn't hit him hard, but they're sunburned. So I, I'm not saying this in an insulting way as if anyone who identifies as gay or lesbian is overly emotional, but rather it, it's going to be a more sensitive subject for obvious reasons. Reach out to the people with compassion, resist the agenda with courage. I knew enough to understand, once you take this on, you're gonna get vilified. You're gonna get attacked. You're gonna be called a closeted gay yourself. You're gonna be called a Nazi and bigot and homophobe and, and everything else. You're gonna get blacklisted. 
So I knew courage was needed. And I saw that the ingredients to take the stand were hearts of compassion, backbones of steel. Hearts of compassion, backbones of steel. I am assuming that those that are at this conference have hearts of compassion. Oh, we could all be more like Jesus. I understand that. But I understand I'm, I'm not talking to Westboro Baptist. God hates fags. Okay, I understand that I'm not speaking to, to, to you uh, as, as, as hateful people. You're talking about people you love and care for and want to minister to, friends, loved ones. And some of you have your own stories that have brought greater brokenness and compassion in your life. So I'm assuming that that heart of compassion is there. The key thing is it must be joined with a backbone of steel. We must be utterly inflexible when it comes to the teaching of the word. God has his standards. We do not bring those standards down to reach us. He sends his son down to lift us up to reach those standards. If you adjust the standard based on where you are, it is a terrible slippery slope that leads to heresy, that leads to moral failure. Better to preach the truth of the word and say, God, I need help, than to bring things down to where you are. So here's, here's what we need to understand. When it comes to the issue of homosexual practice, the Bible is black and white. There is no ambiguity. You might dispute the interpretation of a particular nuance, of a particular word, in a particular context. But the overall message is overwhelmingly loud and clear and definite. Now, the standard objection would be, if this is such a major issue in the Bible, then why are there only about a half dozen explicit passages addressing homosexual practice? The so-called clobber passages as if the church clobbers people over the head with these passages. Uh, my friend Larry Tomzak had a wonderful answer to this, and of course it's a, the exact right answer. Let's say that you are putting together a cookbook of healthy desserts, recipes for healthy desserts, and in the beginning of your book, you, in the introduction, you say refined sugar is really unhealthy. And most every dessert you've had your whole life has a lot of sugar. Well, not a single recipe in this book has sugar in it. You will not find sugar a single time. We have healthy, delicious replacements for sugar like dates, and this and that. So sugar will not be found in this book. So you buy the book, you're kind of interested in it, and and you get it in an ebook form. So you're just kind of curious. You search for the word sugar, and you see it only occurs five times. And it's right in the introduction to the book. And for the rest of the book, not a single recipe includes sugar in it. What do you conclude from it? That sugar is unimportant to the author, that the author doesn't care? No, quite the contrary. The author is so opposed to sugar in the recipes that it does not occur in a single recipe in the book and is only mentioned a few times to say, this is why we avoid sugar. That's ex exactly what the Bible says about homosexual practice. What do I mean? Every recipe, every description of marriage, of family, of relationships, ordains, legislates, presupposes male-female relationships. Every single one. Those are the only recipes in the book. 
every so often, every so often, there'll be a reminder. By the way, homosexual practice is absolutely contrary to God's order, what he created, who he is, what he ordained is dangerous. Don't practice it. Sugar is unhealthy. No sugar in these recipes. When you understand it like that, then you understand that everything that God prescribed, in that sense, is heterosexual, with an outreach to those who live different lives, because redemption can be found for all through the cross. So beginning in creation, in Genesis 1, when God creates us in his image, he creates us male and female. Now, he also creates us to see, to hear, to function in this world. Some people are blind. Some people are deaf. In other words, there, there are disabilities. There are disabilities. But he made eyes for seeing and ears for hearing. We do not draw a doctrine of the function of the eye based on blindness or function of the ear based, based on deafness. In the same way, if someone struggles with gender identity and it's, it's deep and painful, we recognize that they have some type of, of, of struggle, of disability. We have compassion on them, but we don't redefine gender based on that. So God makes us male and female, and then he commands the first couple be fruitful and multiply, speaking of physical reproduction, which can only be carried out heterosexually. And then in the second chapter, when he says it's not good that the man should be alone, it, it, it's, it's not simply an issue of companionship, but function. Because the human being alone cannot fulfill the function of reflecting the image of God in male-female relationship together and, more basically in context, can't reproduce. So that's why God says, I will make a help suitable for him. Not just a companion, but a help. Why? Because the two become one and are needed. So when, when Adam is, is put to sleep by God, no, no animal is a match for him. God takes out of his rib or side, creates Eve. Then when he sees her, he says, at last, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And, and then what does the text say? Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two become one. The two become one because they once were one. Out of Adam, Chava was created. Out of, out of Adam, Eve is created. And now there is a mutual independence, interdependence biologically and emotionally, and, and in every other way, that they are made for each other. Man plus man, or woman plus woman, cannot equal man plus woman. And that's why everything thereafter, every reference to marriage, every reference to family, every reference to parenting, every parable or teaching that talks about this in any way, presupposes male-female relations. It's, it's the only way. It's what God created. It's the only plan for human flourishing. Now, if someone says, well, look, if someone's gay, how does that, you know, the world's overpopulated already. Or, we're, not, we're not talking about ecology. We're not talking about population. We're talking about what God created, God's function, God's plan. So the Ten Commandments honor your father and mother. To this day, no child comes into the world without a biological mother and father. It's, it still cannot be. There is no way around that. Uh, Ephesians 5, teaching on marital relations, Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit your husbands. Right? The, who, if you're in a same-sex relationship, I don't say this to be degrading, and you're reading that passage, you claim to be gay Christians, you're reading that passage, well, who's the husband, who's the wife? In, in other words, the, 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 it, it's like you're trying to fix something on your computer, and you've got a different operating system. 
you know, I've, I've got a PC and you're reading a manual from a Mac. It's like, well, the things aren't matching up here. Exactly. Even though you had polygamous relationships in the Bible and concubines and things like that, none of which were God's ideal, but, but things that were given by accommodation at different times, it's always male-female. Always. And then you have a select number of times where in the midst of this, God explicitly says that certain things are sinful. And he says it in the strongest possible terms because it's a fundamental violation of what he intended. Uh, there is a German evangelist who's with the Lord now, Reinhard Bonnke, uh, literally led tens of millions of people to the Lord in, in Africa in his, in his decades of service there. And he's an evangelist. He preached Jesus. He, he prayed for the sick. His emphasis was, was not on the cultural wars. He didn't get into debates, did do, into debates about these things. But somehow, he agreed to do an interview and secular publication, and he, related to a TV show, whatever, he agreed to do it, not knowing that they were going to ask him directly about homosexuality. He's an evangelist. He's not, he's not coming as a psychologist, psychologist, psychiatrist, or, or some culture warrior. He's just a Jesus-preaching evangelist. And now he's asked directly about homosexuality. And, and he gave an answer. It just struck him spontaneously. And he said, you know, when you go to pump gas into your car, you don't put the fuel pump into the exhaust pipe. And everybody just was hysterical, laughing at the answer. And instead of being hostile towards them, they just kind of smiled. And, and he was he was marveled at the you know the answer as well. Okay, so that's negative. That's derogatory. That's ugly. Hey, fu function function. You don't do that. It, it is contrary to God's design. And when we understand God's order for family includes children. Now there are relationships where it's not possible because of sterility or something like that or because of the age of the couple. But otherwise, the biological union will naturally produce children because that's the way God made us to flourish. And then as, as Katie and, and her colleague have illustrated so well in their Them Before Us book, that for human thriving, children ideally need a mother and a father because of the unique things that they each bring. So the Bible's just explicit on this. That's why in Leviticus 18, where it mentions a list of things that are detestable for all people. How do I know for all people? Because God drove the Canaanites out for these sins, sins of incest, sins of bestiality, sins of adultery, sins of homosexual practice, idolatry. They're, they're all listed there in Leviticus 18. Because of those things, God said that the, the land is vomiting the people out. And if you do that, It'll vomit you out as well. You say, well, that was just for that time. Well, so incest, on what basis is incest is wrong? Someone claims to be a gay Christian, if you throw out Leviticus 18, on, on what basis is incest wrong? Jesus never addressed bestiality, and on what basis is bestiality wrong? And adultery is mentioned there, along within the Ten Commandments. Now, these are moral prohibitions for all people, and, and they are called toivot, so that's toiva, plural, something detestable. And then within that, Leviticus 18.22 specifically mentions homosexual practice 
as a toiva. So it is a toiva among the toivo, it's something detestable among the detestable practices. And then with that, the only thing singled out in Leviticus as a toiva, something detestable, with a death penalty in the 20th chapter. And we're not advocating the death penalty, God forbid. Otherwise, you'd have death penalty for Sabbath breaking, death penalty for adultery, and a host of other things. No, absolutely not. The point is that it's spoken of in very, very strong terms. And if you say, well, that's because it was related to temple prostitution. So incest is only wrong if it's related to temple prostitution. Bestiality is only wrong if it's related to temple prostitution. Plus, the text doesn't mention temple prostitution. No such thing. Well, no, but it, it wasn't relating to a, a committed couple. So if you do something detestable with the same person over and over and over, it becomes holy? No, not according to Scripture. Well, what, what about the idea that you know, well, we don't keep the food laws? And Yeah, yeah. The food laws, Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14, were among other laws that God gave to Israel to keep them separate from the nations. There were other things like prohibition against murder, against adultery, that are universal moral principles for all people. Same here. So it's, it's inflexible, it's definite, which is why in the Judaism of, of Jesus' day, you didn't have to ask a Jewish teacher their view on homosexual practice. It was, it was universally abhorred. In fact, there were, there were rabbinic traditions in the centuries after that that it was basically unknown in Israel. That, that you could have men rooming together, sharing a bed, as was common you know, to this day in much of the world, and you didn't have to worry about it because it, it was basically unheard of. Just, just to indicate the degree of abhorrence that was there. So the idea that you had to ask Jesus, get clarification. Lord, where, where do you stand on this? You know, it would be like asking you know, uh, Billy Graham uh, 30 years ago. Reverend Graham, what's your view on wife swapping and multiple sex partners? We'd like clarification. You don't need to ask Billy Graham about that. So the idea that, quote, Jesus didn't address this, and therefore it's, it's acceptable, is, is ridiculous. First, because it was universally abhorred and rejected in the Jewish culture of that day, there are even Jewish traditions that may have existed in Jesus' day that claim that one of the reasons that God brought about the flood in Noah's day was because they were having same-sex marriage certificates. Yeah, it's actually in rabbinic literature, and it's possible that that reference dates back uh, to the time of Jesus. We don't know for sure how early that tradition was. Also, the argument from silence is very dangerous Obviously, Jesus didn't have an issue with UFOs because he never spoke against them. You know, Jesus had no problem with you taking the, the, the vaccine because he, he was not anti-vax. I mean, obviously, you see how ridiculous the argument from silence is. But the bottom line is, Jesus did address this issue. Why? Well, Matthew 5, beginning verse 17, he says, I didn't come to abolish the law of the prophets, but to fulfill. So with animal sacrifices, priesthood, he takes that to its full meaning in his own life. And then... Think of this, the moral requirements. Don't commit adultery, he says, well, don't even do it in your heart. Don't murder, he says, well, don't hate your brother. So he takes the moral requirements to a higher level. If the Hebrew Bible categorically condemned homosexual practice, he takes it to a higher level. Then in Matthew 15, beginning in verse 19, he said that what defiles you is not 
what goes into your mouth that doesn't make you spiritually unclean, but what comes out of your heart. And he lists the things that defile. One of them is sexual immorality. It's the Greek word porneia in the plural. And, and that means all sexual acts outside of marriage. All sexual acts outside of marriage. Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6, he explicitly says that marriage, he's answering a question about divorce, marriage is the lifelong union of one man and one woman. So he tells us what marriage is, the lifelong union of one man, one woman, the way God ordained it in the beginning. He then tells us that all sexual acts outside of marriage defile us, and he takes the law and the prophets to a higher moral standard. So he reinforces everything that came before. You say, well, what, what about in Matthew 19 when he mentions eunuchs? Didn't that include gay men then because they, didn't, they weren't attracted to women and they had to keep their homosexuality to themselves and therefore people just thought they were eunuchs? So, so Jesus says there in Matthew 19, when his disciples hear how, strong Jesus oppo- how strongly Jesus opposes divorce, they say, well, maybe we should never marry. That's, I mean, that's intense. And he says, well, it's not given to everyone. And he says, there's some who are eunuchs by birth, meaning they have no sexual capacity. From, as they grow up, it's a disability from birth. He said, there are others who have been made eunuchs by men. So, you know, man gets castrated. And then there are others, metaphorically speaking, says who've made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom. So they abstain from sex, they abstain from marriage because they are just serving the Lord only in a celibate way. Is it possible, is it possible that in that culture, when he said some eunuchs from birth, that in that crowd of people hearing him, there would have been people who were same-sex attracted, whom others thought were eunuchs from birth? Possibly. In which case, they would be included among those who abstain from sex or marriage. In other words, the idea that some gay activists have, have, have come up with, that somehow this actually applies to gay relationships, and that you're actually born this way. You see, Jesus said units from birth, and that means you're born this way, and then Jesus is saying, hey, I understand, I give you a pass, now go out and, and have fun. God forbid. What a perversion of the text. The, at most, it would argue that Jesus is saying, hey, I, I know some of you are not attracted to the opposite sex. And this is reading a lot into it. But at most, he'd be saying, I, I, I know some of you are not attracted to the opposite sex, but hey, you just live for me, and I'll be your all in all, and you abstain from sex and from marriage and give yourself over to me. At most, that's what you could deduce from it, and that's reading something into the text. So looking to Jesus is, is not going to help you justify homosexual practice, but it will help you find God. I got a call on my radio show this past Wednesday. It was from a woman in Kentucky, uh, 54 years old. What, she lived at home with her parents until she was in her mid-20s. She left the home 27 years old as a professing Christian, uh, was with uh, another woman or other women living as a lesbian. And basically, she considered herself an Orthodox Christian, but just thought people were misinterpreting the Bible on this. And her mother would come to her with verses 
and would show her, you know, Leviticus 18, and would show her, even though it was about male practice, would show her that, and then would show her, you know, Paul's words that we'll look at in a moment, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and, and she said, that's not Jesus. I don't see Jesus saying anything about it. That was part of her justification. And she lived like this for, well, well over 20 years. Uh, a couple of years back, or maybe more recently, she came across a debate that I did, Dr. James White and I teaming together uh, to debate a gay pastor and a lesbian pastor. And it, it was a, a total mismatch for two reasons. One, we were on the side of truth they weren't. Two, as much as they had argued these points and they were passionate about them and they've, they had to carve their own way in their own lives you know, to, to debate this and work this through, they were not experienced debaters, and, and Dr. White and I have, have had many debates by God's grace. So, but they were the only ones that were willing to debate us. And they, they argued their views as passionately as they could, but they just, you know, you're, you're fighting against God in that respect. Somehow, she comes across the debate, she watches it, and she said, she said, God brought me to my knees. She said, I didn't go to my knees. God brought me to my knees. She repented of her sin. She cut off her relationship with the woman that she was with, and she's just following Jesus passionately and zealously now. She says, hey, I'm not attracted to men, but I'll live without sex. I don't care about that. She goes, I'm not attracted to women anymore. <laughs> so anyway, she was confronted with the truth, and, and when we dealt with who Jesus really was and what Jesus really said, it opened her eyes uh, amazingly, amazingly. What about Paul? Well, well, in Romans, the first chapter, Paul lays out again fundamental order and function. It talks about how human beings rejected God, and he gave us over to the foolishness of our idolatry. And then when we further rejected him, didn't hear calls to repentance, obviously, went further, he gave us over to sexual immorality. When we didn't respond rightly there, he then gave us over to sexual perversion, men with men and women with women, contrary to nature, contrary to the natural function. And then when we rejected him once again, he gave us over to all kinds of depravity and sin and, and all the evil that's in the human race. You say, well, how do gay activists get around that? Well, they will argue that this is, again, dealing with temple prostitution, except the text doesn't say that. And, and when you get to the end of the, the chapter, and Paul talks about all the evil in the human race from greed and anger and you know, bitterness, everything that's there, that's just universal in the human race. That's not only a sin if it's in the context of temple idolatry. Well, a, a recent argument that, to my knowledge, you don't find among any Romans commentators until uh, post-sexual revolution. Another argument is this. Well, you see, Paul says they were given to do something that's contrary to nature. So he's talking about heterosexuals who got so inflamed with promiscuity that God then gave these heterosexuals over to homosexuality to do it was contrary to their nature. So that's not what Paul wrote. And he does explain how the natural function was exchanged. Men now with men and women now with women. And the point he's making is, is that according to the function from Genesis 1, Professor Robert Gagnon, who's the number one authority on the Bible and homosexual practice, Professor Gagnon points out that if you'll read Romans 1 in Greek, and compare it to Genesis 1 in Greek, so the Hebrew, the Hebrew Bible translated into Greek called the Septuagint, you'll find about seven points of reference between Genesis 1 in Greek and Romans 1. Paul's going back to creation. This is contrary to the function 
the contrary to the, the way that God made us. And that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about an individual, that every individual goes through this process, but this is part of the fall of the human race and how we find ourselves where we are. And then in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Paul begins listing sins that will exclude us from the kingdom of God because there are these false notions of grace. You can just live however you want to live. And he says, no, 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 don't, don't let anyone deceive you. The unrighteous, the wicked, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Whether you're a fornicator, an idolater, whether you're practicing homosexuality, whether you're an extortioner, whether you're a drunkard, no, you don't get in. That's what he says in verses 9 and 10. But then in verse 11, and such were some of you, not such are some of you, but such were some of you. You've been cleansed, sanctified, transformed by the blood of Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And he uses two words together for homosexual practice. And while there's been debate a little bit about the exact nuance of how to translate, I, I own every major lexicon of, of ancient Greek and ancient Hebrew. And, and I've looked at this in every detail you can look at. And the words especially together clearly speak of homosexual practice. Not just abusive practices, not just pederasty, not just prostitution, not, not just promiscuity, but men having sex with men, which is how many newer translations translate things. So there's no ambiguity. There's no ambiguity, <laughs> excuse me, from what God intended, male-female relations, husbands, wives, mothers, fathers. There's no ambiguity in terms of God created us male, female. There's no ambiguity in terms of homosexual practice being sinful and wrong in God's sight. And there's no ambiguity that Jesus died for each of us the same. There's no ambiguity that transformation is possible for all. There's no ambiguity that God calls all of us to holiness. And by his grace, we can live holy lives. Now, over the years where I've seen people shift, again, it's been not based on scripture first. There are even gay activists and gay theologians, I'd cite some of them in, in my book, Can You Be Gay and Christian, uh, that will admit, yeah, the, the Bible clearly speaks against homosexual practice. You say, well, then how do you reconcile that? Well, the love, the love command, that that overrules everything. And Romans 13, love does no harm to its neighbor. And the idea that you can't be gay and Christian is terribly harmful. Professor Luke Timothy Johnson, Catholic, top-flight New Testament scholar, brilliant, changed his views on homosexual practice by watching what happened to his lesbian daughter. And the struggle she had and the difficulty she had, this idea that she, she couldn't be herself and follow Jesus at the same time. And then once she realized that they were just reading the Bible wrongly, and she and her partner began to thrive both as Christians and as women, and he saw the positive change in his daughter, he changed his theology, basically said, yeah, it's not, it's not really based on Scripture. Uh, it's based on what I witnessed with my own eyes, and hey, love does no harm to its neighbor. These are powerful arguments. This is your family. These are your friends, people close to you. But ultimately, once again, we cannot interpret Scripture based on our experience. We have to evaluate and interpret our experience based on Scripture. And we know that in the end, even though there may be the emotional release of a sense of guilt, okay, God's all right with my sexuality, there might be the joy of, of 
okay, I can be with this person I love and certain levels of satisfaction. Ultimately, you cannot thrive in God and be all that God called you to be while living in a relationship that is plainly and flatly wrong in his sight. One ex-gay was asked the question, can you be gay and Christian? He said, not for long. Meaning if you truly get born again, you'll have to leave your sinful lifestyle. And I know of stories, people I know personally, or stories I've read, like this one, a lesbian woman, church-going, went to a liberal church, kept wanting her partner to, to go to church with her, and partner, irreligious, said no. Finally agreed. So these two lesbians go to church service, and somehow, even in this liberal church, they give a call, do you want to receive Jesus and be born again? So the irreligious lesbian res responds to the call, is born again, and then comes her conviction and says to her partner, I have to leave you because of what the Bible says. So conversion transformation is, is real. And what happens, though, is we'll change our views because of family and experience. We don't want to seem bigoted. True love, though, is going to do the hard thing. True love is going to get in the trenches, and true love is going to help people come out right on the other side. A couple of other points. It is wrong to pressure someone to be heterosexual. It is right to help them to live a holy life and help them grow in God and be disciples. So we don't make homosexual practice the, the worst thing in, ever, and how dare you can't even say the words like, I'm struggling here. Hey, no problem. Everybody struggles somewhere. And, and that's what God's grace is for, and that's what community is for. Let's, let's move forward. There are some that will literally go from homosexual to heterosexual. I, I know them. Friends, folks I've known for years. God changed them. Some instantaneously, some over a process of years of, of prayer and, and counseling and digging deep in their lives. There are others that have seen a diminishing in their same-sex attraction to the point that it's minor or almost non-existent, and then that little flicker towards the opposite sex. I, I know of some that the, the guy realized, wow, what's going on? I'm attracted to females. And then married one woman says, you know, I don't struggle with lust towards all the world. I'm, I'm attracted to my wife. Wonderful. And then there are others who have controlled lust and things that used to dominate. They've now controlled those. And uh, they're, they're celibate. They're not attracted to the opposite sex. So they say no to their same-sex attraction. They take it to the cross. But they're living in, in freedom. Uh, as, as single people and thriving in the Lord. As, as one gentleman said, Sam Albury, that Jesus requires everything from all of us. You know, same-sex attracted, but living a holy life and doing ministry as a pastor. He said, Jesus requires everything from all of us, and Jesus is enough for all of us. Last thing, should we use the term gay Christian for someone who is a genuine follower of Jesus but struggles with same-sex attraction? Absolutely, categorically not. Even if someone says, well, you know, this is, it's my way of being humble. It's my way of, of, of outreach and telling others, hey, I struggle too. It's, it's a mistake. First, the whole gay thing, that's, that's the language of the world. And it comes with a whole lot of cultural baggage. There's accommodation there to start, which is not good. I'm not condemning someone to hell for this. I'm just saying it's, it's a bad practice. Secondly, we don't put our struggle in a defining way in front of our names. 
I'm a, I'm a gossiping Christian. I'm a lustful Christian. I'm an angry Christian. I'm a jealous Christian. I'm an ambitious Christian. I'm, we, we, don't, we don't preface that. I'm a follower of Jesus. Now, if you dig deeper, we get to know each other. Yeah, I've struggled here for years, and God helped me. Yeah, I'm a gluttonous Christian, but God, no, we don't, we don't put the word first. We can talk honestly about struggles. So it's bad practice for that reason as, as well. Rather, you're a follower of Jesus, and if it's part of your testimony, hey, I've struggled with this, but you don't want that to be your identity. Your identity is you're a child of God, not you're gay, you're lesbian. And friends of mine who've struggled and have found victory have said that that's half the battle right there, identity. Stop making that your identity, and you'll find that it's a path to freedom. There's a movie that I hosted for the American Family Association, American Family Studios, that came out a few months back called In His Image. I highly recommend watching it if you haven't. It's free online, inhisimage.movie. You're, you, we deal with culture, we deal with theology, and then we have powerful individual testimonies. Inhisimage.movie. You put in your email, and then you can watch it for free. And if you want to have a, a viewing at your church with other materials from AFA, that's available as well. Inhisimage.movie. And then our website, askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org. We've addressed issues in the culture and what the Bible says and how to minister in scores of videos and articles and then a few different books. So you can check out those resources as well. So hopefully we hit on some notes that are helpful to you. And I'll turn things back over to our hosts.